Welcome back to Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. Uh, This program is meant to be a help to those of us in our congregation who are doing the uh, year-long Bible reading plan and to whoever else uh, happens to tune in and and we uh, say welcome and hello to those who are outside the Calvary family. Uh, And we hope that uh, this just serves as an encouragement to keep reading, uh, serves as some guideposts as to what to look for and just how to not just understand, but I think uh, absorb uh, some of these things that we're reading, especially here at the front end of the Bible, which is often where uh, year-long Bible reading plans are shipwrecked. And we reach the book of Leviticus today, which uh-huh. uh, is razor-sharp rocks <laughs> for the little <laughs> ship of reading the Bible in a year. But hopefully we can, uh, we can offer some guidance and some insight. We actually have some questions uh, from last week and even a few from previous weeks that mm-hmm. I wanted to, uh, to give to you, um, if I could, Pastor Ben. Mm-hmm. So the first one actually comes to us from the book of Job. Um, a couple of times in the book of Job, um, Orion's belt is mentioned. And so the question is, um, Orion's belt is still what we call that constellation today. Mm-hmm. Was it already named that then? And if so, like, where did that name come from? The Hebrews did not call that constellation that. I think they called it something else. Uh, so that's a translation choice rather than uh, just putting what the what they called the constellation they've translated into Orion. Orion is a Greek word, I believe. So mm-hmm. I think the ancient Greeks called that constellation that. The Hebrews might have called it something like the, the warrior. Say what? Fool's bracelet. Oh, well, fool's bracelet? Huh. Fool's bracelet. Uh-huh. Yeah, I had a whole little rabbit hole about it this week. Man, they should at least tell us that that's what they call it. <laughs> right? Yeah, I agree. Because it means something more in Job. Huh. I'm just, ha- sorry, I'm just having a... Can you loosen the fool's bracelet? A reorientation. Can you loosen Orion's belt? Yeah. Because can you loosen Orion's belt? Sounds odd. Can you loosen the fool's bracelet is a little more poetical. Well, poetical and also, I think, directly applies to what's been happening of like can you you know <laughs> the fool's wearing this bracelet of what they think the world is and the wrong <laughs> yeah yeah so i thought you would enjoy that yeah it was a... so short answer is no that's not what they called it the ancient greeks that's we use mostly ancient greek terms for the mm-hmm. constellations um and so uh i i imagine because it was ancient greek astronomical manuscripts that were available to Europeans as we kind of developed the modern astronomy, whereas kind of Babylonian or Persian or uh, Chinese or Aztec star charts, we obviously didn't have available to us uh, until much later when we'd already named them for the same reason that most of our planetary bodies are named after Greek and Roman gods. Um, In the book of Exodus, we find that there are a lot of like calendar year references. And so the question was, what calendar did the ancient Hebrews use? Like when they begin a new year, what year did they think it was? So at least internally to the Bible, we don't get a lot of information about what their kind of big picture calendar was in terms of, you know, so we say it's 2023 traditionally because, you know, AD, right? The year of our Lord, 2023 years since Jesus was born, roughly. Uh, Now they use the terminology of the common era, which, I mean, is kind of nakedly nonsensical, but whatever. Uh, And that's us. That's our dating system. I think that ancient Hebrews probably had some 
thing that they were either dating from. Uh, they obviously weren't, you know, they didn't have a sense of a countdown at so many years until such a thing happens. Um, and so it's unclear. The Bible doesn't really tell us. In terms of the yearly calendar, there is also some mystery or some ambiguity about like when they thought their year started. And so in Exodus 12, it seems like it's saying that the year starts at Passover uh, or very near to Passover, the head of the year, the turn of the year. Whereas later when they, uh, the laws talk about, uh, they don't call it the Festival of Trumpets in the Bible, but that's what the holiday came to be known as. And the Hebrew term for it, the Rosh Hashanah, means the head of the year. And so there's also some, perhaps that was the new year, or perhaps there were two different calendars in ancient Israel. One, an agricultural calendar that started in September with Festival of Trumpets, and then a liturgical or a temple calendar that started in the spring with Passover. You know, so the average Israelite is a farmer, and so I think the agricultural year, the agricultural calendar is probably more important to them. I mean, both of those things are still calendars that they're using, uh, but and it also may reflect differences in time. So maybe earlier on in Hebrew culture, September was the beginning of the year, and then they switched over to the Passover. You know, we know that for Hezekiah and Josiah, some of the later kings of Judah, uh, Passover was a very big deal, you know, and, and so it could be that that's a reflection of kind of a cultural change later on. Short answer is we don't really know. Um, and so they obviously had calendars. They were important. They had a yearly cycle that they went to, similar to the church calendar uh, or just even the secular calendar, right, that we have New Year's and Fourth of July and these other things that happen every year and are just part of the, the kind of the, the wheel of the calendar. Um, I think for them, the two things that they were trying to keep track of time-wise is what do we need to do in the fields and then what do we need to do at the temple? And so we kind of see the overlap of those two uh, calendars, those two senses of keeping track of time. I'll also throw this in just as a hearkening back to Genesis, because we didn't talk about it, that in Genesis 1, when it talks about the creation of the heavenly bodies, that they're there, it says, to for the marking of times and seasons. And, I mean, that's true of every culture on the planet, that we've used the sun and the moon and the stars to, to kind of dictate the calendar. But the Hebrew terms used there are specifically the ones that mean the feasts and festivals that the law will later stipulate. And so, yeah, just that, that the, the calendar is, the time is for something. Uh, it's not just given to us to do whatever we want. Um, and so just this ancient Hebrew sense that, you know, we are meant to mark our life with God, that we're meant to mark the story of God in time and how we spend time is very strong. And I think we, we all, you know, we also see that with the Sabbath day, just being a more regular uh, kind of instance of that idea uh, on a weekly basis. Well, if the creation is the beginning of their, their calendar, that probably started after the Exodus, right? If they're, if they're marking it that way, as Moses has kind of given the story that we find in Genesis, um, they would have at that time begun a yearly count and however they understood themselves from the from the beginning of the world. It's not as though the patriarchs were checking years right. from the from the creation. But I mean, we're in Exodus, so it, that that practice probably began in this period of history in the the wilderness wandering or the entrance to the promised land. Well, because it's just, it's one of those things where we're so used to it that it just seems self-evident. Of course you would keep track of what year it is, but like that, that kind of presupposes a view of like human history that I'm not sure really ancient people had. Sure. Like there was no sense of like, because like the idea of linear history, like that this is a story that's headed somewhere. 
is Abraham's fault. Like, yeah. I mean, that's the story that started to generate that understanding. As far as we understand before that, it's not that they didn't keep track of history, but just that it was the cycle that history was circular. Mm-hmm. And we still see that reflected like Hindu and Buddhist yeah, thought. Absolutely. That there is history as such doesn't really exist. It's just the same thing over and over again. Whereas for us, we have this understanding which has mutated into kind of the modern uh, idea of progress, right? That we're headed somewhere that we need to make it there, you know, and and change laws and live our lives so as to be on, quote unquote, the right side of history. (laughs) But that whole thing only works if there's a creator God with goals, you know, who is leading his people or leading the world towards those things. And so, yeah, I just don't know if, if ancient people would have dated like would have had like oh yes it's the year whatever since cre- i don't know I, I yeah anyway i read a book called the meaning of history by a guy i don't remember his first name but his last name is nash and it was <laughs> it was fascinating the 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 description the in detail description of how different ancient cultures mm-hmm. kind of reckoned history and all of them mm-hmm. for the most part saw it as a circular, circular thing yeah. It really is as though it took something from the outside mm-hmm. coming into us to give us this idea that actually a process is happening. Because human understanding left to its own devices was pretty universally cyclical. Yeah. And we see that even, I mean, there's something to that wisdom-wise, even in the book of Ecclesiastes. Yeah, that's you know, true. There's, there's something about human life and well, experience. Well, there are that, cycles. Yeah. That cycles. Yeah. Um, but also the cycles are heading somewhere. Mm. And that's that's fascinating. The next question is, <clears throat> I'll just read the whole question. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know why I never paid attention to this before, but Moses always asks Pharaoh to let his people go to the desert in order to worship God. At first stating it should be a three-day journey away. Moses does not ask Pharaoh to permanently let the Israelites go. God said in Exodus 6.10, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. Why does Moses add to it, stating that they're going to be in the desert to worship? It makes it sound like they will be coming back. And with that in mind, did Pharaoh think they were coming back after they worshipped and realized he was tricked? Thanks. It's a good question. I, I think there could be a couple of things at work there. Uh, number one is that we know that there is this, this kind of recurring idea of redemptive deception. Uh, we might, we might, you know, dispute around the word deception, trickery, redemptive maybe deception. redemptive trickery. Well, I mean, we see a lot of unredemptive trickery in Genesis, <laughs> but we also see some redemptive trickery. True. I mean, true. with, with, uh, Yahweh wrestling Jacob and, uh, Joseph, the Joseph story, kind of redeeming his brother's treachery, Tamar. That's obviously some redemptive, some some mm-hmm. righteous trickery. And the midwives, Shifra and Pua, at the beginning of the story, they lie, yeah. and it's they're they're rewarded. They're right for doing so. Yeah. And so I think that that is probably part of what's happening. That they are lying, <laughs> they are misrepresenting the truth, but in a redemptive fashion. I think also that there could be some like ancient bargaining dynamic there that that we don't have culturally and so we it just looks like they're lying but maybe it's a way of like saying what you want to say without actually saying the thing and then connected with that there could also be some honor and shame dynamics happening here too that they don't if pharaoh doesn't have to lose face in this then it would be easier for him to grant the request meaning if they say if they what they agree to is we're going to go three days in the desert worship our god with the assumption public assumption that they're going to come back, but then the Hebrews just take off, then the world doesn't have to know that the Pharaoh of Egypt let his slaves leave, but rather he 
magnanimously, generously, what a classy, modern pharaoh he is, let them go out into the desert to have this festival, but then they took advantage of that and ran away. So that could also be part of what's happening is that it's a it's a honor-shame thing where they're trying to let Pharaoh... I think that it's probably mostly the deceptive or the redemptive trickery aspect just because I don't know if they care about Pharaoh's honor. <laughs> I don't think they care for Pharaoh's honor in and of itself. I think, if anything, it's just it will make this easier if he, you know, if he can be kind of uh, coddled into doing this nice thing for them and then mm-hmm. they... They take off. But. Okay, uh, we have another question that's come in. But something that has bothered me about Pharaoh and God hardening his heart is that God hardened his heart so he could showcase his power. Mm. But it affected so many people so negatively. I have a hard time with that. Is it okay because the entire nation has participated in enslaving the chosen people or because they didn't worship the true God? It just seems to me that God hardened his heart and then said, Welp. You aren't doing what I ask, so these bad things happen, but I'm the reason you aren't listening. Does that make any sense? I think that modern people, we have just a very hard time with this aspect of the story because our individual freedom is very important to us. Uh, Not that it shouldn't be, just that that's a very high value. I think that at, at one level, what part of what Exodus is doing kind of in the big picture, and we talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago, is, you know, the Genesis... It starts universal, but then it gets very local very quickly and sticks kind of with one family. Mm-hmm. You know, That changes a little bit when Joseph goes to Egypt and kind of has his experience. But Exodus is much more like showing us that Yahweh is not just Abraham's kind of family God. He is, but he's not just that, that he is the Lord over history, that he has power over other countries and their gods and their governments, which was a kind of novel concept in the ancient world for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of, you know, and, and you can kind of approach it from both ends, kind of coming from the underside, people thought that each country or each people had their own kind of patron deities that had a jurisdiction over the place where they lived. And so when two peoples went to war, their gods would be fighting each other. That meant that if you crossed over into another country, you were now in that god's territory. You'd left kind of your god's territory behind. And uh, the the biblical uh, narrative is is obviously counter contradicting that, you know, kind of breaking those rules of saying, no, like Yahweh is actually with them in Egypt, he comes to Moses outside of Israel, and then he intervenes, you know, uh, over these other gods without the people fighting. The Israelites don't fight the Egyptians, you know, mm-hmm. so it's not even the traditional yeah. how the gods fight. Maybe, and then from the top down, you know, I think there might have also been an acknowledgement that there are all these little local deities, but maybe there's sort of expressions of, you know, something bigger, something mm-hmm. greater. Uh, but we can't access that. Like, that's just what it is. And then it, it sort of manifests itself in these different ways in these different countries. And again, the biblical authors are saying, no, that's not how it is. The creator uh, is accessible, you know, through this one people. Um, and so it's this, it's just kind of making making everybody mad, you know, <laughs> kind right. of rubbing everybody the wrong way. So that's, that's kind of a big level of what's happening here. And so God can influence Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh is a semi-divine figure in the Egyptian religion, right? Mm-hmm. He is the son of God, the son of the gods. And so for Yahweh to be able to turn his heart at all is mm-hmm. making a very big theological statement. So that's something that needs to be considered here. I think the part of the question of, you know, 
Pharaoh's decisions are affecting his whole people. Is that just? I mean, the question asker didn't use the word just, but I think that's the, you know, is that right? Is that okay? That's a good question. Again, I think our modern conception of, you know, we are kind of individuals with our rights and everything else grates against this idea. But in the ancient world, the king represented the people. The king represented the country. You know, the king was the country. The leader was the people. And, I mean, we see this reflected in theology, right? That Adam and Eve represented all people. That Jesus mm-hmm. represents all people. You know, the king is the people in, in, a, in a real way, in a representative way. And so I think that's happening kind of negatively here. That Pharaoh is representing the people of Egypt. Yeah. Um, and so I think that an ancient person, I just, I think that would... It's not, I'm not saying the thought's bad. It's a good question. But I just think that that sort of thing would just never have occurred to them to even ask. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, that sure. doesn't mean it's bad, you know, and I think that we can, it's a good thing, you know, that Western mm-hmm. culture has developed our our, our uh, thinking around individual rights and, and, and all of that. But um, just that that is just not the sort of uh, cultural mix that the Bible is coming out of. We also see that there are Egyptians who leave that come with the Israelites when they go. I think they're Egyptians who obeyed some of the warnings, you know, brought their animals in from the hail, you know. So, I mean, I think it's not this monolithic like every single Egyptian. Like, they had choices they could make as individuals as well to heed these warnings and to sort of be exempt from from uh, some of the effects of these plagues. There may have been Egyptians that put blood on their doorposts. We don't know. Um, and, and saved their, their firstborn. I think... I think that if they did, then they would have been saved. Like it was not a, you know, Egyptians are all evil and I'm going to punish them. Like they right. could make choices to, well, to many get of them out did. from under this judgment, right? I think the last thing I would say about this is that it's interesting with the plagues and in the text. And this is, again, one of those repetition things that can kind of make our eyes glaze over. But the subtle differences are very important. That the first couple times, Pharaoh hardens Pharaoh's heart. And then Yahweh starts to harden his heart. And I think that's a very important to, to point out and to just mm-hmm. keep in mind that Pharaoh does it for to himself. And then Yahweh kind of agrees with the process. <laughs> and I think that that also tells us something important about divine judgment in the, as conceived in the Old Testament. And I think the, the whole Bible that often the judgment that comes is poetic, meaning it is right in line with the choices you were already making mm-hmm. and that some of that the choices themselves often are the substance of the punishment, you know? And so for Pharaoh to have built his society on top of slave labor, I mean, it was built on sand, right? Because slaves revolt. People don't want to be slaves. Like that's a lousy thing to build your economy on. Our own country has experienced that and dealt with it. And is still dealing with, you know, the after mm-hmm. effects of it. And so, you know, I think that the, whether or not any divine intervention happened just in the pure, you know, two-dimensional history, I imagine the Hebrews would have revolted someday anyway. <laughs> you know, like this was always <laughs> going to end badly sure. for Egypt because they had built their empire mm-hmm. on sand and on the, the evil of slavery. And so, yeah, just all of that to say, Pharaoh's already hardening his own heart and Yahweh judges him in course with the, the choices he's already making. Yeah. So, in our readings for next week, we're doing Exodus 35 through Leviticus 8 with a short detour into Numbers with passages regarding worship at the tabernacle. 
And so what I want to do is I want to give a little bit of a summary of the readings that we're doing, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit. So beginning with Exodus chapter 35. In the last few chapters of Exodus, Yahweh's people begin constructing the tabernacle. And as, it, as that happens, we get a sort of Old Testament version of Holy Spirit gifting in the New Testament, as craftsmen are given wisdom and understanding by Yahweh to create various parts of the tabernacle exactly as God wants it to be made. And it isn't just the tabernacle itself. We also get a detailed description of some, some of the clothing of the priests. And this clothing is deeply symbolic and would have been beautiful. We can certainly talk later about the individual pieces and their significance, but there seems to be an important idea being communicated here. The tabernacle is beautiful and ornate, putting someone in the mindset of heaven. And the priest's garments do the same. There's an important idea here for the rest of the Bible that Yahweh's place, heaven, is connected to the earth that we inhabit. The tabernacle is one of those places, and the priests are as well. And so we kind of get this picture that these priests have one foot in heaven and one foot on earth. And we'll talk more about that in a bit. Now, when the tabernacle is completed, Moses blesses the people because they followed the directions exactly as they were given. And then the glory of Yahweh descends on the tabernacle, and something about that glory makes the place where it dwells inaccessible. And this is a problem, because Yahweh dwelling in the midst of his people is amazing. But if they can't approach him, how are they supposed to fellowship with him? This is a problem that will be dealt with in the next book. Now, there are some things I want you to notice as you read the end of Exodus. First, as Pastor Ben mentioned last week, try to imagine what these things looked like, the clothing of the priest and the structure of the tabernacle. Also, if you've read the rest of Exodus, you'll no doubt notice some verbatim and near verbatim repetitions. Yahweh's people are given instructions and they carry them out exactly as they were told to. Stick with them and notice how meticulously Yahweh's people are fulfilling his expectations. Why does uh, working on the Sabbath merit a death sentence? Chapter 35. Mm -hmm. The very beginning of the readings for next week begins with um, commands about working on the Sabbath. And it is pretty intense. So the passage is, let me see here, uh, 35, 1 through 3. Moses assembled the whole Israelite community and said to them, These are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day shall be your holy day, a day of Sabbath rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it is to be put to death. Do not light a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. And then directly from there, we go into instruction or the, the creating of the tabernacle. I think that there's some, so this is a recapitulation of some of the prior or of the prior commands for Sabbath that have already been given. Right. I'm, I'm not certain if a, if a death sentence is connected to it in the earlier laws. I don't know that it is. I'm not. I don't I don't think so. But I don't think so. Yeah. But what's what they're getting ready to do, I think, is a significant part of this. So this is a reminder just before they begin construction of the tabernacle. Mm. And the tabernacle is supposed to be this place. It's it's a replacement for Mount Sinai. It's a precursor for the temple and Jesus himself and the, his church. But it is the, the place where God dwells mm -hmm. among his people and it goes with them. And it requires construction. It requires quite a bit mm -hmm. of construction. And this is a process that's going to take some time. Mm -hmm. And so as his people begin this process of, of working, there are things that they're supposed to be demonstrating. One of them is that they are, beyond the shadow of a doubt, his people. 
And so one of the things that was very important to Yahweh, so much so that it was included in the Ten Commandments, is the honoring, respecting, and holding of the Sabbath to make sure, one, that people are not exploited, right, and overworked, Hmm. but because they were slaves in Egypt, right, and they could very easily be driven to something like that level of labor again Mm -hmm. in construction for Yahweh. But Yahweh is a kinder master than the Egyptians were, and he insists on Sabbath. But also this becomes part of the core identity of of Yahweh's people, that the Sabbath rest is a remembrance of him. Um, His rest at the end of the creation narrative is Yahweh kind of rests and begins to get to work on running creation. His people are to honor and remember that. And so I think that this is connected to how important the tabernacle is. If they're going to build his tabernacle as his people, then they need to do things like honor the Ten Commandments that they were given. The one that's most likely for them to break in the construction of the tabernacle is the Sabbath. And so he says, it's real important that you don't do that. Here's how important that is. If you do that, you'll be put to death. But that also means that the people in charge of the work cannot demand it from their mm-hmm. their workers. So I don't think that this is this would be seen as, oh no, Yahweh won't let me work seven days a week. Mm-hmm. I think that this is, hey boss, you can't tell me I have to do that mm-hmm. because Yahweh said it's so intense, it carries a death sentence. There's no way for the people lower on the totem pole to be exploited in the way they were in Egypt if they have to, on pain of death, take a Sabbath every week. I think that's a wise answer. And I think that actually brings up something that we will probably talk more about later. But just that I'll talk about the the kind of the big idea and then come back to the specific passage. Uh, thank you for that. I think that so part of what you just did there is you drew a connection between why this law is where it is mm-hmm. in relation to the other things around the text. And I think that's a very important piece of the puzzle in reading the laws is and we don't always know why because it's and they we haven't known for thousands of years mm-hmm. why some of these laws are placed where they're placed there's lots of theories you know non-western minds often will like categorize things very differently than we do mm-hmm. and so for us it's like why is this where it is whereas i think for them it would have been well of course because they all have to do with blank and you know we'll we'll talk more about that the kind of thing as we go but then also that they're narratively placed, you know, and so there's yes. a there's a scholar named John Salehammer who I very much appreciate. I don't fully necessarily agree with it, but I think his broad point is correct that we see the laws almost always come after disobedience. And so something rebellion will happen and more laws are given. Rebellion will happen and more laws are given. The tabernacle doesn't quite fit that because I think that was intended. That was always intended to be what was going to happen. Well, those aren't laws. Those are that's true. That's yeah. true. Those are instructions. Um, but you see this after the golden calf. We'll see it after mm-hmm. Nadab and Abihu. We'll see. I mean, throughout the book of Numbers, there's rebellion and then there's more laws. And uh, and so just in a big sense of, you know, if the Israelites had just signed the covenant, well, they didn't sign it, but you know what I mean? If they just agreed to mm-hmm. it back in Exodus 24, I think we could imagine an alternate universe where they built the tabernacle, they had the priests, and there weren't any more laws. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. And they could just live with Yahweh and uh, that's it. You know, I mean, not yeah. that's it, but just you know, keep the Sabbath and, and there we wouldn't have seen this profusion of, of laws. And so, and I think this is part of what like Luther hit on back in the Reformation is I don't think a lot of his application was correct. That's why I'm not a Lutheran. But again, I think the big idea is correct that the law comes in response to yeah. to sin. And Paul says that, I think Galatians, you know, that, that the law exists for lawbreakers. 
And so just to just to appreciate that fact that the laws are placed where they're placed, there's some intention behind that and that we can better understand the law itself mm-hmm. by paying attention to where it is placed and, and what comes before and after it. And then this is a, a good kind of relatively easy example of that because i think even to say why do they specifically talk about fire you shall not kindle a fire in all your dwelling places on the sabbath day well because they're about to do a lot of work with gold and brass and silver which involves fire (laughs) right and so it just ties that in again to Mm -hmm. say you shall not do this you know it's not that yahweh hates fires You know, in fact, he seems to actually rather like fire. He does, actually, yeah, quite a bit. <laughs> and so it's it's not it's not about the denial directly. Mm-hmm. I think it's about the like you and you put this very well. It's about protecting them as his people and protecting the Sabbath as a, as a holy time, not to just to get down about everything, but to be able to enjoy their relationship with the Creator and 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 the goodness of life. Um, so chapter thirty seven, we get. A description of the Ark of the Covenant, and mm. I'd like you to speak a little bit. So we, you've, in, I've said this, you said this, that the tabernacle is a earthly copy or a model, both of the universe, because Yahweh built the universe as a yes. temple for himself, and then also for the heavenly, whatever that means, heavenly throne room, mm-hmm. you know. And so then the Ark is where the pres- where the special presence is. I think later on in the Bible, it's more referred to as the footstool, or maybe specifically the temple. When it's installed in the temple, that's the footstool of Yahweh's throne. But it's it's part of this throne idea. And if you could just kind of speak to some of the imagery there uh, that we see. Yeah. So chapter 37, verses 1 to 9, we get um, the description of the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. And so a couple of things that are really important, I think, here is that this is a big table. Um, it's not as, or chest might be a better way to describe it. It's not, um, it's not as big as perhaps some, like the table Pastor Ben and I are sitting at now. It's not as big as this, but we have, we have several feet by several feet by several feet of a table here that's made out of acacia wood and then covered in gold. Again, I think giving the, the impression that, um, this is a, a very important thing. And inside of the chest, of course, things are going to be put. The, the stone tablets are going to be in there. Moses' staff are going to be in there. Manna is going to be put inside um, as reminders of, of this story. But what we have is, um, first, the, the first bit we find, aside from the size and the gold around it, are the rings that are made on its, um, fastened to its feet. And the, the importance for that is that this is a, a thing that is meant to be carried by God's people, to go with them. Um, and carried by them, not put on a cart, not carried by animals, carried by Yahweh's people. And in mm-hmm. fact, that, that becomes an important act of disobedience that happens later in a story in, in First uh, Kings and Chronicles that can be terribly painful and confusing for people um, <laughs> when uh, uh, someone reaches out a hand to mm-hmm. steady it and, and is zapped by God's holiness. Yes. Um, but the, that, sim, that symbolism is important. And I think, I think one thing to say is everything you read, I mean, these are whole, these are rings fastened to the feet and the symbolism is deeply important and significant. Uh, Mary Douglas, who's a mm-hmm. anthropologist, um, that pastor Ben put me on to talks about how oh. literally everything in here is just 
filled great, with book, significance. Great yes. book. Reading Leviticus's literature. Mm-hmm. Come borrow it book. from me because mm-hmm. it is excellent. It anyway, is a very good on, book. Carry on. And so uh, that's that's that's. I want you to understand that every part of this is intentional. I mean, Yahweh designed it. You can be sure that He filled every part of it with significance. But then what we have is the atonement cover uh, made of pure gold, and two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. And so this is the this is the throne. This is the seat where Yahweh is is considered to sit. And he's in, he's surrounded by cherubim, the angels, right? And so this is a, a sign again of the heavenly reality being manifest on earth so that the presence of God is surrounded by his cherubim. And in stories where we see um, the glory of the Lord, we often find he's surrounded by angels. Isaiah 6 comes to mind when mm. Isaiah has a vision or is really taken or if there's a difference between those two. <laughs> and he sees he sees the Lord high and exalted and he's surrounded by mm. cherubim, seraphs, cherubim, angels. Um, and so uh, uh, I think... It, yeah, it is seraphim it in is seraphim. Isaiah 6. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, um, I think that one of the things that's so important about this is that we are to look at this and realize there is a heavenly reality Mm. here, and this is a place where heavenly things happen. Mm -hmm. And then it's going to be put in the, the very center or not the center, but the deepest part of the tabernacle. Mm -hmm. And, and it is, it is unapproachable. Uh, we find out later, except for in very specific circumstances, because of its holiness and its location. And all that is just portrayed here with the symbolism of the construction. Uh, In the middle of chapter 38, there's this little throwaway reference that I just wanted you to comment on. And verse 8, And he made the laver of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the women who flocked to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And I know in the NIV, which is my normal devotional translation, that line is uh the bronze from the mirrors of the women who ministered at the entrance of the tent of meeting or who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting so i just want your thought on what it, what do they talk who are they talking about who who were these ladies and what were they doing is this a reference to some kind of a like a not not like a co-levite core of women but some kind of a quasi I don't know. I don't know. Tell me what's going on. What What do you think is going on there? So there are a lot of different theories, um, and the general consensus is we don't know. Um, so a lot of the times in the construction of... This is one of those times where I wish they would have just given us a little bit more A little information. bit more information. Well, so it's common in the construction of holy things that women are involved in the the um, overseeing or the so temples mm. at different times have women employed and serving in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the times there that's in in non-Israelite um, mm-hmm. portions that's connected to prostitution, mm-hmm. right? That is not the picture we have here. So I right. think that part of the significance might just be that women are involved in the ministry, but not in the way that they are involved in ministry in the pagan religions or in some of the other religions at the time their mirrors are used and i don't know what kind of per, like deep significance mm-hmm. that has other than perhaps a rejection of vanity i, I don't know um but uh, it is it is they have given up their mirrors and i think we are supposed to by knowing the rest of the law by knowing yahweh and his commands for his people see the women are not excluded but they're not included in the way they are in most other religions at the time mm. which would be as prostitutes mm. you know i think that it is generally the case 
certainly for Christian communities, and I imagine for a lot of Jewish communities, ancient and modern, that while the men are kind of the ones who hold formal authority and are the quote-unquote ordained ones, and of course right. in the tabernacle they really were anointed and ordained, that there's always also been a infrastructure of women who help keep the show going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and without whom... None of this would be possible. Like, I think about our context, you know, Calvary's never had a woman pastor. You know, we've, we've had women in leadership just recently, you know, in the last uh, 15 years. But there has been a strong tradition of women at this church without whom the ministry would not have survived. Yeah, it's very true. <laughs> like, if we didn't have Nikki and Diane, we would be <laughs> up a creek. Yeah. <laughs> Or I think about like me and Clayton personally, you know, like yeah. if we did not have Diane and Nikki, we would, and of course we're the ones that are up front all the time, but like without kind of these, uh, without these ladies helping us, like we would not be able to do what we do. Or I think about whether or not there's ever been anyone that's had such a labor of love at Calvary as Rita Goof, yeah. who for, if I'm not mistaken, 38 years was the, the janitor at Calvary and cleaned this building with love and intention. Mm-hmm. And we go through replacement janitors about <laughs> about once every nine months, six yeah, to nine yeah. months. And we have since she retired. Yeah. It's a difficult job and it's not one that people love to do. And she did it for 38 years. And I just think about the holiness of that. Mm-hmm. Um, she's uncomfortable with praise and would probably be uncomfortable with being called out in such a positive way in this podcast. But I, I think about that act of service sometimes and the incredible way that she ministered at Calvary that way. Seriously, I think that is the longest served function in Calvary's history, maybe. So what we're going to do here is, as we're at the end of Exodus, we're actually going to make this kind of a part one of this week's podcast, and um, we're going to we're going to conclude here. If you have more questions about Exodus or the Exodus readings from this week, please let us know, and we'd love to respond to them. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's. If I lost all the hair off the top of my head, which would be a real tragedy, I would look like a half-melted Michelin man (laughs) if I lost my hair. Please, sweet Jesus. Preserve my hair. <laughs> a half-melted Michelin man. You wouldn't look good bald either. You would You would look like concept art for Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> <laughs> a gritty Mr. <laughs> Potato Head reboot. <laughs>